Siestok, Onevem Dan McIntyre, Huddersfield Egetem Nielveseti Professor of Ojok, Offluentio Podcastet Holgachak. Show, a podcast all about loving and living and learning languages. Hello, listeners. It's Kirsten here, Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk. And as always, I am here to talk to you about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. And I'm not alone today. Oh, no. I've got someone who has such interesting stories so much interesting knowledge and i think i'm going to be learning so much because i have so many questions i i can't wait to talk to professor dan mcintyre from the university of huddersfield hi dan hi kirsten hi have i said your last name right i've just realized it's the yes, first you have. Oh, okay so it's mcintyre not mcintyre McIntyre, that's right. McIntyre. We've got more questions about pronunciation coming up. <laughs> Listeners, before I get cracking to talk to Dan, I've got some really important announcements for you. One is, of course, to give a shout out to our show sponsor. And that is, as has been throughout most of the last year, long-term supporter, long-term sponsor. It is Yabla, Y-A-B-L-A. I've got a question for you to kick off my sponsor announcement. And Dan, you can play. Okay. Uh, it's a pretty obvious answer, but you, you get to play. <laughs> <laughs> I feel what, under pressure. <laughs> what do a Chinese sitcom, an Italian hip-hop video, and a formal announcement from Angela Merkel have in common? Oh, you've got me there already. Well, they're all on Yabla. <laughs> they're all on Yabla as practice videos because Yabla is this massive video library where they take the videos, build super accurate transcripts, and this works in six languages. So you, if your target language is Italian, Spanish, French, Chinese, English, or German, you can go to the Yabla library and then work with these videos. And they've got all these really jazzy treatments of how you can switch the subtitle off and on. And my favorite thing is you can loop a line of subtitle. So for your listening comprehension as a learner, it is an absolute boost. It is fantastic. And they've got all these different kinds of videos I've recently noticed. So that was my Yabla quiz. <laughs> it sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds cool, yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, sorry, listeners, I, I, I've roped Dan in to do the advert with me, so here we are. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, something I have recently done that I would love for you to check out is I've actually done you a little Yabla tour video, which shows you how I use the videos for my own language learning, and it just gives you a bit of a look around. It takes about five minutes, and that is on the Yabla website at yabla.com slash fluentshow. So if you want to just see how I set up my Yabla and how it all works, go over there and just have a look around. That's yabla.com slash fluentshow. Thank you so much to Yabla for supporting our podcast. Secondly, important, important announcement to all of you who haven't got your ticket for Women in Language yet. Now is the time as this show comes out. We're only a few weeks away, Women in Language this year is running from the 4th to the 7th of March. It is an online conference, as always. We have got a very, very amazing lineup of speakers. I'm really excited about it. I'm going to tell you more about it in the next show as well. But until then, don't forget, tickets are $29, as always, and you can get them at womeninlanguage.com. Dan, have you ever attended an online conference with COVID and everything? I actually haven't. I've done quite a few talks online, but I've not actually been to an online conference yet. I must be the only academic who hasn't. <laughs> yes, maybe, <laughs> actually. Well, ours is ours is definitely, it's, it's not entirely an academic conference. We've got learners presenting about their own stories of what's worked for them. We've got a few online teachers talking about really cool stuff. We, each of our organizers, so me and my friends, Lindsay and Shannon, we each lead a panel as well. So we've got panel discussions. We have got speakeasy sessions, which involves 50, 60, I think last year we had people turning up on a Zoom call. Everybody 
states the language that they would like to practice and then we put them into breakout rooms you get to practice any language that you want with wow. whoever is there <laughs> yes. that's fantastic it's it's mad it's mad and uh, we've got a bingo as well and we've got a raffle so <laughs> <laughs> we're a bit of a village carnival kind of conference i like the sound of that it is really really fun so if you and it out of our speakers are women non-binary trans you know so women uh -huh. xn in a way we just we don't let men speak <laughs> <laughs> quite right just just for once but we ticket sales are open to everybody everybody so men women non-binary no matter who you are you are absolutely welcome to come and join us at women in language if you want to check it out and like i said it's womeninlanguage.com where you can get your ticket now that was it from me and my announcements Dan, do you want to make an announcement? Anything new going on over at Huddersfield? Well, I suppose the, the news from our end is that we, we have a book coming out called The Babel Lexicon of Language. Um, it, it's coming out, um, I think, later on this month. And it's a spin-off from uh, a magazine that I know I've talked to you about in the past called Babel. Um, and I'm, I'm one of the editors. Uh, the book is a, an A to Z of linguistic terminology and it's aimed at complete beginners and it just aims to demystify some of the uh, the lingo and the terminology that goes with linguistics. Oh my god I saw just yesterday a tweet from somebody asking where can I get the sort of linguistics for dummies introduction where you know does anybody have a book that they would like to recommend so oh I'm I'm really curious about this I would love to order this and I'm going to get the link from you and pop it in the show notes so listeners you know where to find the show notes it's fluent.show I'm going to put a link to this book in there now let me formally introduce Dan who is just the most generous <laughs> <laughs> the most generous guest ever puts up with all of this and uh, yes let me tell you more about Dan and what I'm going to talk about and why I brought him on. So Dan McIntyre, that's how you say it, that's is right. Professor of English Language and Linguistics at the University of Huddersfield, that's in the UK up north, where he teaches stylistics, corpus linguistics, the history of the English language and audiovisual translation. Now Dan and I met for the first time at the language show in London, I think in like 2015 or something like that it's a while ago yeah i remember i had this is 2015 you know how i know i had just started learning welsh and in the same year i got married and my friend came up to me he's a fluent welsh speaker and said Kirsten. i was terrified because i had no idea what he just said uh it means congratulations in welsh and these days i'm not scared of that anymore but it stands <laughs> out in my memory <laughs> so i know it was 2015 and dan was there with the stand for a magazine called called babel babel okay babel <laughs> uh not babel no um that actually when uh, when i met you at the language show um quite a few people asked how we pronounced it and that was the first time we'd even thought about that because for us it was always babel that's interesting but how come do you think a lot of people are asking that question um i'm not sure actually i mean th there is the verb isn't there to babble yes um, that's true uh, and i suspect that that that's where it came from um but We'd called the magazine Babel because of the story of the Tower of Babel. So that's that's where we'd got it, that got the name from. Mm -hmm. Now, how long have you run this magazine? We started in uh, 2012. That's when the first issue came out. We, we did a first issue that was kind of a, a, a sample issue, a pilot issue, if you like, just to see what people's reactions would be. Um, and it went down really well. Um, and so we've been doing it for nine years now. Now, listeners, if you haven't seen Babel magazine, it is it's an absolute delight I would say for, for language lovers and sort of for linguistics, you don't have to be a linguistics professor or academic or anything like that to understand what it's about. And something that I often find with research and with academia, and one of the reasons I certainly didn't continue with it so much is I was always really intimidated by academic language, by the language of journals, the language of articles, you know, when you have to read a page and you have to read it again, you have to read it again, you still don't know what you what you've actually read there and what it all means in in 
real terms. Um, and I found that with Babel, what you brought was this sort of complete, completely different thing. It is really a magazine in almost in the way any other magazine is that you're buying, but it is just about language. So what is that the intention? What motivated you to do it that way? Yeah, I, absolutely. That was the intention. And um, it, it's a beautiful looking thing as well. It's really nicely designed. We have a, a great designer called Richard Honey, um, and he does a great job in, in making it just look like a beautiful product. Um, but it, yeah, it, it came about because we, um, I edit the magazine with a colleague of mine, Leslie Jeffries, who is also a professor at Huddersfield. And we both noticed that you could go to a news agent and you could buy magazines about history and literature and art, you know, whatever special interest you might have, there was a magazine for it. Um, but there wasn't a magazine for uh, about language. And we knew that there were lots of people who were interested in language. You just have to look at the number of people learning languages, um, the number of game shows on TV and radio that are focused on, on language. So we thought there was probably an appetite for this. Um, and we wanted to make something that was really accessible, that wasn't just going to be another academic journal, um, but that would talk about all the interesting things going on in linguistics, um, but from a really sort of accessible standpoint. And how was Babel first received when you sort of presented it to colleagues? Um, well, I, I think it was received enthusiastically by our own colleagues, first of all, because one of the first things that, that we did was to put together a, a little team to help us do this. So we had um, various people involved uh, in our department who helped us put together the first issue um, and form a, an editorial board for the magazine. So we, we then expanded that group to colleagues at other universities in the UK um, and worldwide. Um, and we've started sending out the magazine um, towards the end of 2012. Um, we took it to various conferences that, that we went to. And gradually, we, we, we tried to expand our audience beyond academics and PhD students and undergraduate students um, until we were reaching people like A-level teachers um, and eventually just interested readers, people who were interested in language but uh, didn't necessarily um, use a uh, study language as, uh, as part of their job. Um, and ultimately, we, we were able to reach that audience and it's gone down really well. And we, we get lots of positive comments from readers and subscribers now. Um, so it's, it's going really well. Mm, I think... As a reader, it is an absolute delight to be to be getting a Babel magazine sort of, you know, through the post because it is a paper magazine. I think you've got an electronic version as well. We it, do. It's such a it's such a fun way of kind of playing around with this topic. Now, I wonder how I'm thinking about, you know, the world of academia and I'm thinking about the focus on uh, well, in the UK, we're calling STEM, right? So yeah. what is it? Science, technology, something, maths. Engineering and maths. Engineering yeah. and maths. <laughs> and um, do, you, do you feel that in terms of funding, in terms of reception, that Babel is helping, making a case for linguistics as a valid science, as a thing that, you know, also needs attention? Because it can feel that humanities are not really considered that valuable anymore. Yeah, um, I hope that it's making a, a contribution um, towards that. I, I mean, there there is over the past few years, there's been a, a bit of a development in that now you sometimes hear people talking about STEAM disciplines, so mm -hmm. science, technology, engineering, arts and mathematics. Um, so things are changing gradually, I, I think. Um, but I think the interesting thing about linguistics as a discipline is that it's so wide ranging. So at one end of the spectrum um, linguistics is very technical uh, if you think about speech science and phonetics and the physiology of speech all that kind of thing and then at the other end of the the discipline it's very connected to the arts and humanities um, through um, sub-disciplines like stylistics which is uh, uh, the study of style in language and is, is often um, practiced by people who are particularly interested in the style of literature. So um, linguistics has a lot to offer um, to a lot of different disciplines, I think. 
So you've brought me on very, very conveniently. Thank you very much to stylistics <laughs> because it's something I wanted to ask about. Um, obviously, I've read in your bio. So, oh yes, Dan is a is a professor of stylistics, and I thought, oh, that's nice. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Can you can you explain what stylistics is? Which branch of linguistics? Where does it live? Yeah, I'll I'll try. Um, so stylistics is the the linguistic study of style in language. Um, and when we talk about style, you can you can talk about different kinds of style. So there's authorial style. Um, and that's the style that we associate with a, a particular author. So, for example, what is it about Charles Dickens's writing that makes him so distinctive um, as a writer? How is it that when you read a piece of Dickens, um, you can instantly tell that it's Dickens and not, say, Charlotte Bronte? So that's one aspect of stylistics, the study of authorial style. Um Then there's genre style. Um, so the styles that are associated with different kinds of texts. So a newspaper, for example, uses a very different style to a novel. And when you start to look into this, um, you can you can pretty quickly begin to see how that style comes about through particular linguistic choices. So, for example, in newspapers, um, what one of the things that you'll find is that the infinitive is often used to talk about the future. Um, if you think about headlines like uh, Prime Minister to announce new lockdown um, and the infinitive there is referring to a future action. Now, that's not something that, that we would use the infinitive for in everyday language. So that's a particular linguistic feature that's distinctive to, to newspaper language. Um, so that's what we mean by genre style. Um, and then, of course, there's text style, which is the style associated with individual texts um, and the effects that that style uh, creates. So, for example, if you're a, a novelist, you can create particular point of view effects by your choice of pronouns and uh, verbs and, and that kind of thing. Um, so those are the kinds of things that, that stylisticians are interested in. Um, and a lot of stylisticians are particularly interested in the style of literary texts. But there's no reason why you can't practice stylistics on texts of all kinds. That's it's it's really fascinating, really interesting. So when you are digging into the style, let's say, so yeah. you've already mentioned, for example, the infinitive being used in newspaper headlines. How do you go about analyzing this, a, a piece of writing or... Uh, a set of spoken language. I guess you're working with a corpus, so maybe for the listeners, we might we might need to talk through what a corpus is and what the point of that is. Yeah, a, a lot of the time, uh, if you're looking at aspects of authorial style or genre style, particularly, yes, you are working with a corpus. Um, and the best way to think about a corpus is it's just a database of language. It's a large collection of text. Uh, corpus comes from the Latin meaning body. So uh, a linguistic corpus is just a body of language, um, ideally a representative sample of whatever kind of language uh, you're interested in. Is corpus linguistics something that Is a 20th century, 21st century thing because of computers or have people always done it somehow? Um, it's it certainly developed as a as a subdiscipline of, of linguistics or method, if you like, um, during the, the 20th century. The, the first um, electronic corpus uh, of English was the Brown Corpus um, that was constructed at Brown University in, in the US. Um, and that's a corpus of 1960s written English. Um, but there were certainly corpus projects before then. Um, there's the Survey of English Usage at University College in London, um, which is a, a collection of uh, texts um, that, are, that are British English. Um, and going back even further than that, you had people um, trying to collect examples of language. Um, the, the early work that was done on um, the Native American languages, for example, really trying to, to collect languages before they died out. So that's mm. where corpus linguistics originates from. And the idea really be behind corpus linguistics is that um, if you're going to make um, claims about language that are generalizable and reliable, um, then it needs those claims need to be based on a sample of, of language that is representative. It's no good just looking at small quantities of language. You can't really make generalizable points from, from doing that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a lit. It sounds almost like when you put in it that way, like modern anthropology. I suppose it is. Yeah, in a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, coming back to the the stylistics um, perspective, if you want to make claims about um, the styles associated with particular writers or particular types of text, then you need a large sample. Of, of those texts in order to, to be able to make reliable claims. Now, I've got a fun, slightly unrelated, but just a fun fact from, you know, one of the six facts that I seem to retain from my, from my master's. <laughs> so my master's is in translation studies, uh, which is not an extrovert's profession, which is why I'm not a translator anymore. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but what, what I remember is, uh, we, we did talk about corpus linguistics and sort of, that's how I know what a corpus is yeah. and fun fact about the translated literature corpus, or at least in, in those days. So this is, um, I, I did it about 15 years ago <laughs> is <laughs> that the biggest corpus of literature that was available of that is translated into English, it's not literature. They said it was in-flight magazines. Really? At the time. I think it was, wow. yeah, it was into English. Not from English yeah. into other languages. There's lots and lots of that. But into English, it was in-flight magazines that, that they could easily get hold of and that kind of made a big part of that. That's interesting. Yeah, because when you think about it, they are, and for, for years after, I was always looking at them <laughs> because they're bilingual often. And if, you know, if you're flying on some German airline or something like that, they will always give you German and then English because that's yeah, international that's aviation language. Yeah, so that's my, my party fact. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the good fact. <laughs> <laughs> Might not be so factual anymore, but I'll, I'll run with it for now. <laughs> <laughs> now, something um, something that I'm interested in is for us as language learners, um, we I wonder if corpus not corpus linguistics, but if stylistics has some kind of almost intrinsic aspect. Do you think the more we read and the more that we consume a certain genre or even a certain language yeah. do you think that the more we do that the more we we build our own inner ability to be like a little amateur stylistics person and to work out how to respond and how to how to communicate in that style i, I think you're absolutely right um I, I think the more you read and the more you encounter different kinds of texts, um, not just reading either, but the more you encounter different kinds of speech situations, mm -hmm. um, then the easier you find it to, to manage in, in those situations and to recognize the styles that are associated with particular texts and, and particular, uh, particular social situations. So it's all about, I suppose, building up your um, your knowledge of, of what's appropriate for particular contexts. And that's big part of, of being a successful language learner, I think. Mm -hmm. In the kind of field of what is the best language learning strategy, which there are certain people who have strong feelings and strong opinions, yeah. uh, but the academic that all the, I think, English teachers love and that, that kind of gets quoted the most, I would say, by people who talk about language learning methods is, uh, well, I mean, it's going to be Dan McIntyre after today, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, is, is Stephen Krashen. Okay. Yeah. Yes, because of this idea of, okay, you want the comprehensible input and you want as much as possible to come in so that yeah. you can do the inner figuring out. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Um, and I think, uh, going back to your, your question about, I suppose, the relevance of, of corpus linguistics and stylistics to, to language learning. I mean, one of one of the things you can do with a corpus, of course, is look up particular words or, or phrases mm -hmm. and you can see the context in which they're being used. Um, so you can see patterns emerging um, in, in your data. So, for example, if you looked up a particular word in a, in a corpus of newspaper texts in a language that you were uh, particularly interested in, um, you can start to see how the your target word, if you like, is being used in that particular text type. And that might be quite different from, from how it's used in, in another kind of text or in another kind of situation. So I think there is a place for corpus linguistics in language learning. I think it's still, um, 
probably fair to say it's still in its its infancy as a as mm-hmm. a technique for learners there are a lot of language learning materials that are produced that are based on corpora now but actually getting learners to use corpus techniques either in the classroom or, or in their own time i think there's still a bit of a way to go with that mm-hmm when you say language learning materials that are based on corpora, I'd love to know more about that. Um, so dictionaries, for example. Oh, um, yeah. Most modern dictionaries now are corpus based. Um, so if you think about dictionaries like the Collins Cobuild series um, that were produced um, by John Sinclair and his team at the University of Birmingham, um, those dictionaries and, and the grammar books that, that were also produced as, as part of that project, those are all based on um, a, a large corpus uh, of English. So it's real English um, in use. That, that's the point, really. That's fascinating. So do you work with the English language only or do you work with other languages too? Um, personally, um, I only work with the English language. I've made various attempts at learning languages for fun um, but my research um, is just about English um, but I've, I've also been interested in things like um, subtitling and um, subtitling for the deaf and hard of hearing um, and how uh, the choices that you make when you uh, write subtitles has an impact on how people respond to the uh, whether the TV program or the film or, or whatever it is that the subtitles are for. Oh, it does. Yeah, I, one of the things that that I've worked on is characterization, um, and so imagine you're watching a. a TV series and you're responding to the way that a character talks and things that they say, obviously. Um, and taken together, all, all that information combined with your background knowledge about character types, um, that's going to allow you to build up a picture of a character uh, in your head as, as you're watching. Um, now, if you imagine that you're relying on subtitles when you're watching a TV program or a film, um, and the subtitles don't contain all of the dialogue because they can't because you know we we can't process all that information so you have to shorten the dialogue when you're producing subtitles so that the question then is is what information gets missed out of the subtitle and is that important to characterization so i've worked with a, a couple of colleagues um, on projects looking at that kind of thing and looking at what mi- gets missed out in the subtitling process and what kind of impact that has on how you perceive character um, as you watch. And do you have any do you have any findings that kind of you can share with us? Yeah, um, we did uh, a study of uh, The Wire. I don't know if you've seen The Wire. Oh, the my God. Yes. Was not <laughs> able to understand anything without subtitles. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what a, a lot of people said about The Wire, that mm-hmm. they watched with subtitles um, because it, it is very dialogue heavy. And really specific um, uh, language. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of um, lots of dialect that you might not be familiar with, lots of idiolect, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that posed, I think, a real problem for subtitlers because... Uh, it is such a dialogue-heavy show, and when you're subtitling, you do have to condense that dialogue. So there is a question then of what can you legitimately leave out without impacting on um, the, the viewer's experience. And what we found when we looked at The Wire was what tended to get missed in the subtitles is interpersonal information. So the kind of language that you use to establish a relationship with somebody. Um, so I'll give you an example. There's a there's a scene, I think it's right at the beginning of the first episode, and um, the, the main detective, who's called McNulty, is talking to um, uh, a witness to uh, a murder, and he's a young black guy, and he's talking to the detective about how every Friday night, him and his friends would sit around in, in the alleyway playing dice games and card games and that sort of thing. And one of the things that he says to the the detective is, look, I'm saying, I mean, every Friday night we're rolling bones. He's talking about this dice game. Um, And what gets missed out in the subtitle for for that bit of dialogue is the word look, um, the word I mean, and that question tag, you know. And on the one hand, you can say, well, yeah, you, you don't really need those bits uh, of the dialogue. It's ah. not intrinsic to the content. But what it but does it's all do, the hedging. Exactly. It helps you to sort of uh, see that there is a relationship between this guy and the detective. Um, they're not sort of 
talking at cross purposes. Um, they're, they're not just talking uh, about things in a, in a fairly disinterested way. They've managed to form some sort of relationship. And when you don't get that in the subtitles, you, you lose that aspect of the characterization. And that can sometimes be uh, a bit of a problem. That is that is really interesting. And um, well, first of all, I just love that as a, if you want to watch the wire for your work go <laughs> go into stylistics and you will be Absolutely. able to do that <laughs> it's fascinating but i'm also thinking about in the back of my mind i'm thinking about subtitling obviously from the point of view of a language learner and i know how many language learners countless i tell you how many people will use TV shows and, you know, because it's interesting and yeah. because, you know, you want it, right? You want it, but you something like Call My Agent or there's more and more um, Dark, the German show, there's more and more and more stuff available. And the amount of times that I have watched with my husband say Dark, and yeah. I will say, that's not really what she said, because obviously I'm German, so I can, I, I know what she said on the screen and yeah. he's watching it with me and he doesn't you know he doesn't want to have to think german learning mode for hours on end so we what we switch on english subtitles and really often i think that's not quite what she said that's not quite what she meant there's something not quite there's something not quite there in the subtitles yeah. and um i mean we have to acknowledge that subtitling is a hugely complex task mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do um, but there are certain cases where um, there is information in the dialogue that would be really useful to have in the subtitle. And of, of course, you're, when you're subtitling, you're restricted by the number of characters you can have on a line and by the mm. fact that you don't really want to go over two lines uh, for subtitles. Um, but there are cases where there is the space within the subtitle to get that information in. Um, and in, in those cases, I think it's important to put it in um, because it, it can have an impact um, on how you respond to a character and um, in, in some cases, how you even uh, pick up on particular bits of plot. Mm, that's fascinating. It's, I think it's one of the reasons not to plug the sponsor, but it's just that something I've noticed that Yabla does because the focus is language learners. They make an effort to make their subtitles very, very accurate to the yeah. sounds because it because for obviously as a language learner you don't come to it with the same requirements and the same needs as somebody who is hard of hearing who wants access to the story and access to the enjoyableness but doesn't want to just read 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 maybe but also wants to look at the pictures as yes. a as a user of something like a software that is designed to help you learn a language through that video you are ready to rewatch the line as many times as it takes because it's all about hearing like starting to tell apart the different sounds that they make and l linking them to the words and then linking them to the meaning that they're making it's an entirely different way of consuming it isn't it yes it, it is and uh, i think um subtitling for language learning um t is a takes a different set of skills i think than than subtitling say um tv or or film mm -hmm. um because you, you are restricted in the number of characters you can have on a line and people's reading speed and, and that kind of thing. Um, when you're subtitling um, TV drama, for example, you have to um, uh, restrict what you, you put in the subtitle. Um, if you were simply to subtitle everything that was going on in the dialogue, it'd be very, very difficult um, for, for people to, to read. Um, that's a slightly different issue, I think, when you're talking about subtitling videos for language learning, uh, where you might want to see absolutely everything. And, and that might be a video that you would rewatch, you know, multiple times. Is there a difference between subtitle and closed caption? Essentially, it's the same thing that, that really what you're trying to do is um, convey in one medium what's being said in another mm -hmm. medium uh, there are technical differences to do with whether you can switch on the subtitles or whether they're sort of um I, well a bit old-fashioned now but burned into the dvd um but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like embedded yeah exactly um but essentially it's it's the same thing mm. i was just wondering because sometimes you can you get a choice don't you of do you just want the dialogue or do you want the dialogue but then also 
um, unintelligible whispers and yes, man vocalizers yeah. and wind howls and things like that. Yeah, that's right. And um, that kind of information you find in subtitles um, for the deaf and hard mm. of hearing. Um, and of course, that brings its its own difficulties with it if you're a subtitler, mm-hmm. because if you've got to put that information in the subtitle too, then that reduces even more uh, the amount of space you have available for dialogue so it's it's a really skilled job and it's a a really difficult job Mm. now this season of the fluent show i sort of said i would focus on linguistics and i think this this conversation to brings together so many different branches of linguistics and things that you can study about language when you go and study linguistics i think it's fascinating because it's not just about I mean, we know it's not just about learning different languages, but it's, you know, the the different types that we have discussed, just we've discussed today, you know, stylistics, corpus linguistics and what subtitling and audiovisual language, audiovisual linguistics. You can really dig in. Absolutely. Um, If you go and study linguistics, uh, it's quite common to begin by studying, um, I suppose, the the core aspects of the discipline, which are phonetics, the the sound system of of language, um, grammar, which Mm -hmm. is the the structure of language, you know, the structure of words, structure of sentences, that kind of thing. Um, And also meaning, um, semantic meaning, which is if you like, sentence meaning uh, and pragmatic meaning, which is meaning in particular context. Um, And if you study those three aspects of language, then that gives you the the grounding, if you like, for going off and then applying um, that information in all kinds of different areas. So, you know, we've talked about um, subtitling, audiovisual translation, but you can apply all those, all that knowledge, if you like, um, to areas like speech and language therapy or forensic linguistics um, or advertising. There's a whole range of areas where that knowledge is applicable. Mm-hmm. Do you, so you teach and we've talked about, obviously you, you work on research projects, you work on the magazine and yeah. you also teach. Do you have, you probably supervise PhDs, something like that. Do, yes. Do you have a favorite part of your job, the a class that you like to teach or something like that? Um, I, I really like teaching first year students. Um, I teach a course on the history of English at first year. And I think one of the things that I really like about that is um, because people often haven't done any linguistics or any in any English language at school, um, they come into a subject new. And so that puts a, a weight of responsibility on you to enthuse them about this discipline that they might not have heard of before um, and also to make it accessible and that's one of the things that I really like trying to to take something that is a a complex idea and and make it understandable I I don't really have much time for um, academic books that are almost deliberately obtuse (laughs) I I like things to be understandable and I I think there's a a skill in in doing that I agree I agree so much and it's I think it's it's one of the things that keeps me going with the podcast. Not that I have the obtuse complex knowledge in the first place, but <laughs> it gives me an opportunity to ask people to to spell it out and make things accessible and a little bit easier for people to to understand. And I think there's no there's no shame in that at all. It doesn't always have to be the most complex iteration of what it could be. Absolutely. I think it was was it Einstein who said everything should be made as simple as possible but not simpler. Uh, and I quite I quite like that. Now this this is a good this is a good opportunity as well to ask me as language learners if we're thinking language style and specific types of texts and obviously you you're you're my expert now on <laughs> different kinds of texts and complexity is there a kind of language that you think would be beneficial to look for as a learner because I do subscribe to the idea that you should consume as much as possible as you can understand yeah. It's definitely better than sitting there and trying to, you know, like read the rule of the German cases without even having a context for it. That just doesn't work. Yeah. So it's and it's it's also really annoying and boring. And <laughs> I'd, I've never seen anybody happy about that one. But what kind of language and what kind of context do you think we look for as a learner? Um, I suppose it depends what you're learning the language to do. Um, 
if you're interested in um, conversing in you know just everyday situations, then you're going to look for a particular kind of language. If you're learning a language in, in order to be able to read. I don't know, uh, novels or newspapers or whatever it is, then you'll have a, a different set of needs. Um, so I guess it really depends what what the motivation is behind learning a language. I, I think in general, though, I think trying to tackle newspapers um, is often uh, a, a good place to start because you can start with fairly short articles. Um, you can pretty quickly pick up the conventions of the genre. Um, but I think also um, novels are, are, are not impossible to deal with as, as a language learner, you know, even at a, a fairly low level, if you go for uh, the, the right kind of style, if you like. Mm -hmm. See, something... Something that is my my pet grumble, I guess, my pet, my pet hate <laughs> in language learners, something I see really frequently is people picking up fairly complex literature that is written for younger learners or people yeah. advising others that they should just look for children's books. But when I've done that and when I've seen other people do that, I found the language of a children's book is usually, it's really specific because it builds its own world somehow. And it's also not simple at all the sentences aren't always simple they can go on for pages and pages yeah and i think you're right there and and um trying to work out what people mean by simple um is is a task in itself and and as you say it's not always necessarily that the books that you would think uh, of being simple that, that are the best places to start um in fact, I, I can tell you about a, a little project that I did um, with another colleague um, where we looked at the language of Ernest Hemingway. Um, and we found some interesting things doing that uh, about Hemingway's style that I think would probably make Hemingway um, a, a good place to start for somebody learning English who, who wanted uh, to, to read literature. Oh, uh, really? And, yeah. Uh, um, we started from um, really noticing that literary critics had, had made various claims about Hemingway's language. So um, they said that he used simple sentences, that he didn't use um, adjectives, um, lots of quite confident pronouncements about Hemingway's style, if you like. And we just wanted to see whether that was actually the case. Uh, so what we did was we built a corpus of Hemingway's novels and it, it came to about three quarters of a million words. And we compared that against two million words of written English from the 1930s to the 1960s. And we looked at things like adjective use. Um, and we found that um, Hemingway, uh, his adjective use, um, it was in line with what the literary critics were saying. So he did sort of underuse adjectives if you did a statistical comparison. Um, one of the other things that we looked for was subordinating conjunctions. So words like if and because and so and for, that kind of thing. Um, and we did that because that was, uh, we thought that would give us an insight into whether Hemingway was using complex sentences. So if you remember that the literary critics were claiming that Hemingway didn't use complex sentences, he just used simple sentences. Um, and in fact, what we found was that just wasn't true at all. Um, and in fact, Hemingway was using more complex sentences um, than you found in the language generally. Oh. So that was a, that was a really interesting finding because it went completely against the intuitions of, of the literary critics. And uh, what we found when we started to look into that was the complex sentences were turning up in the dialogue of characters. So it was turning up in character speech. Um, the simple sentences were in the narration. So... In a way, the literary critics were onto something, but the corpus approach had allowed us to sort of nuance that a little bit. And um, it, I, I think it, to take that back to your initial point about what sort of text should you be studying um, when you're a language learner, I think there, there is a case to be made there that for English, Hemingway is a good place to start because the narration is fairly easy to, to deal with. Yeah, skip the dialogue. Yes, yeah, skip the dialogue. <laughs> 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 oh, that's fascinating. I wonder if I wonder if one day there'll be a some kind of research project or some kind of project that looks at 
like the simplest sentences in literature or something like that and takes it international because I can see like in German, um, which yeah. is obviously my native language and the language I t I've taught the most to other people. So I know the pains of German more than any, <laughs> any other. <laughs> um, and German does a thing where if you've got a subordinating conjunction, it puts the verb at the end. Yeah. Um, so it's not in English. You're so used to have uh, what subject, verb, object, and then you've got the conjunction, and then it just it just happens again. Subject, verb, object happens again, right? Yeah. But in German, oh no! <laughs> it's like <laughs> um, you have conjunction, subject, all the object, all the modifiers, all the other stuff, possibly another subclause, like. German journalistic style is a nightmare because um, you might have 70 words and then the verb. You're desperately waiting for the action at the or end of the even, sentence. Or even worse, sometimes the verb sort of half happens, but <laughs> it's, a, it's a verb that splits off. So the prefix comes off and the yeah. prefix is all the way at the end. <laughs> so, but you have only two letters and then you look at it all and it's like... Duh, 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 duh. Um, and you might have stimmen ihnen. So like zustimmen is to agree. Um, and then you have like den ich stimme ihnen. Okay, da, 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 da. and you don't know until the end whether they actually agree or disagree. It's like you you often hear stories from interpreters who say German is just you have to. It's like maths where you have to keep something, <laughs> you know, like you have to keep one in the back of your mind, yeah, <laughs> so that yeah. you can add it later on. <laughs> and that kind of thing is is so 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 complex. So yeah, simple sentences. It would be so handy. It would be so amazing if we had a pointer that said, okay, you can find really simple language in French here. You can find really simple language in German here. And there's more and more now, more and more of a trend of graded readers and sort of yeah. that kind of language being generated in stories, you know, because we've, we've really seen that interest and uh, entertainment is such a value to a language learner. You can't just continuously be like, I would like two tickets for the train at 11.45 or something. Nobody cares. Yeah. You know, you need a context of why they're buying that ticket and where are they going and what's the point. And more and more now, I've, I mean, I've, I've made a German course built around that. We, we, I think the trend I'm seeing in language teaching is to work with simple language, but in a bigger story context that yeah. adds interest. I, I think that's really important, isn't it? Um, and I think it would be possible, I, th I think, to um, to come up with some sort of um, survey of um, simple language, if you like, where to find simple language. But I think the caveat to that is that um, it, what you consider to be simple depends on your starting point. Um, mm. So in my History of English class, um, one of the things that we talk about, uh, first of all, is Old English. And Old English was a very different kind of language to present day English. Um, it was much more similar to German in, in terms of its grammatical structure. So you find inflections on nouns that tell you whether that noun is the subject or the object, that kind of thing. And because of that, word order is, is of much less importance in Old English than it is in present day English. Yeah, that sounds and, familiar. <laughs> yeah. And so there is a tendency, if you're not familiar with those kind of languages, to look at the development of English and say it's got simpler over time. Um, and it, not really is, is the answer. It might have got more regular, um, but whether it's simpler really depends on your starting point. If you're a, a, a native German speaker, trying to get to grips with Old English, you might have a much easier time than someone who is a, a native English speaker, for example. Mm. Um, so simplicity um, is partly an issue of perspective as well. Mm. Well, that brings me very nicely, sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm a great bridger, Dan, I am really... <laughs> That brings me very nicely back to Babel, though, because the the mission with that and, and you know, something that you've, you've said right at the start and through the interview is the mission that you have is to take what is a little bit maybe nebulous and kind of simplify it. And uh, we've seen, you know, that we've just talked about how much that benefits learning. So I wanted to ask before I let you go um, yep. with Babel. Do you think it's it's going to be, or have you found, because it's been around long enough, right? Have you found that there is a difference that it can make to people, to people's understanding of linguistics and the interest and how much they kind of go on to learn about it? Um, yes. Um, I was talking to 
A-level teachers recently uh, about Babel um, and about their experiences of using Babel in the classroom. Mm. Um, And they all said that it's a really good resource for students because it does bridge that gap um, between uh, classroom learning and textbooks, if you like, that that are often um, not quite at the right level um, for 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 students at a level and, and at school level um, and what it's done uh, this is what teachers have, have said is that it, it's enabled students to get into the higher marks because um, it's given them a way into the subject matter that they wouldn't otherwise have, have got um, and that you know they might have struggled with a, a higher level textbook um, so I think there is some evidence in in how Babel has been received that that it it is having an impact um, on people's understanding of of linguistics. Um, I heard as well from uh, various people um, who are not students of language, they're just readers of the magazine just because they're interested. Um, And they've said that it's, it's impacted on the way that they talk about language with other people and that they feel it's given them more of an evidence base to to speak from because i think the interesting thing about language is because everybody has some kind of language capability everybody has an opinion about language that Mm. stands to reason um but that opinion often is not based on uh, on evidence it can often be based on prejudice and you see this particularly when people become very prescriptive about language use you should do this and you, you shouldn't do that and most of the time those kinds of prescriptive rules don't really have any basis in in reality it is just uh, prejudice that has, has sort of filtered down the generations if you start looking at how people really use language um you very quickly see that, that there isn't much sense to, to those kinds of rules. And that's one of the things that, that we've tried to do with Babel, um, to give people an evidence-based perspective on how language um, is used. That's, I love that. I love that so much because you're right. And I think the internet, if anything, is making that an even more dangerous field where you know people have always said a little knowledge is a dangerous thing Um, and now it's so easy to get like a little half knowledge (laughs) about one of everything yeah Yeah. so you are you are educating you're hopefully in in our own small ways to contributing maybe to tolerance as well i love that i I love that now is there are you aware of babel cousins brethren sisters uh, around the world in other languages um I, there is a, a magazine or there was a magazine i think called language which was um aimed at i think teachers uh, more than the general reader it was still trying to to make language accessible um but i, I think that one had more of a uh, a focus to it uh, in terms of its readership um we produced a, a kind of spin-off from Babel uh, for a while called Lingo, which was uh, aimed at younger readers uh, and school kids, that, that kind of audience. Um, and you can still get Lingo from our, our website um, if you go to, to babelzine.co.uk. Um, you can subscribe to Babel there, but you can also um, find our, our spin-off magazine as well. We don't do that anymore. We just did that as a, as a short-term project. Oh, fabulous. And anything about, say, language written from a different language's point of view, if you can follow? So something yeah. like Sprache or Long or something like that? Uh-huh. Um, well, in Babel, we do have a regular column called Languages of the World. Um, ah. And uh, each issue, we feature a profile um, of a different language. Um, some of them are, are major um, world languages that um, that you would uh, recognize immediately. Some of them um, are, are much rarer um, and in some cases dying out. Um, so what we've tried to do there is just uh, give people an insight into different kinds of languages um, to sort of open people's uh, minds a bit about uh, differences between languages um, because languages are, are very different um, in terms of structure and phonology and that kind of thing. 
so we've featured we've even featured uh, older forms of, of English like early modern English what made early modern English different from present day English that kind of thing so we try to cover some of that in Babel so it's not um, it's certainly not a magazine that is purely about the English language mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. Now, listeners who are in the UK can subscribe to the paper version. But if a lot of my listeners might be in Australia or in the USA, what's the easiest way for them to have a go or have a have a little browse around Babel? Um, we have a digital version of the magazine that costs £23 wherever you are in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, Each? And it, uh, for that's for a subscription for four issues. Oh, okay. Um, so that sorry, yeah, that does sound a bit much, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, so it's a quarterly magazine. Right, right, right. Uh, yes, okay. Four times a year, um, uh, but you can buy individual issues if you want them, um, and you can buy print copies wherever you are in the world. We will send them to you. Um, it will just cost a bit more because of mm. postage, obviously. Brexit. Um, and Brexit, let's not even go there. Um, but if you do want to um, f- find out about the magazine before you before you subscribe, um, we do have a free issue on our website, um, babelzine.co.uk. Uh, so you can look at a sample issue of, and see the kinds of features that, that we have in the magazine. Oh, fabulous. So listeners, if you do have a look around the Babel magazine, maybe take a picture if you're looking at it on your iPad or something, take a picture, show me your issues and show Dan your issues as well and do tag them as well. Uh, you can use the Fluent Show tag, which is hashtag the Fluent Show. It's not that. <laughs> it's not that, <laughs> that complicated. You can tag me on Instagram. I am Kirsten K E R S T I N underscore Fluent, and on Twitter I am the Fluent Show. So it's a bit complicated, but I'm sure you can keep up. We're clever. And uh, how would people find Babel on social media? Can they? Will they? Yes, absolutely. We we've got quite a big Twitter following um, at Babelzine. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find us on there, follow us on there. We're also on Facebook. Just search for Babel, the language magazine. Fabulous. So listeners, do check out Babel. It really, I every episode, every episode, every edition that I have had, I think maybe I've got a 2021 somewhere on the way. I haven't seen it yet. But every edition that I've seen in the past, it should have been so much fun. My favorite, I can tell you my favorite thing, Dan, that I've ever, that <laughs> okay. my favorite bit of Babel so far that I've seen was the time that you had a flow chart in the middle and it was almost like a poster and it was like a quiz. And I used to love the quizzes in magazines <laughs> when I was 16, where it was like, <laughs> you know, it was like, was what's your what? flirt type? But this was what kind of linguist are yeah. you? <laughs> I don't know if you remember making that, but I absolutely loved it. Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, we have an annual Babel lecture. Um, and for the last lecture, we printed up some of those posters, um, uh, full screen full size sort of a naught um, so that people could buy them because they're really popular and people seem to really like those and we sold them at the at the lecture. Oh my gosh, do you have any left? Yes, we do. I'll, I'll, I'll try I'll and find one. one for you. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. I really, really liked that. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so listeners, for all of your Babel magazine needs and fun linguistics magazine needs, uh, go to Babel Zine. So that's B-A-B-E-L-Z-I-N-E. And it's yep. .com, right? Uh, .co.uk. .co.uk. Apologies. So just like my website, fluentlanguage.co.uk, this is another .co.uk masterstroke, babelzine.co.uk. <laughs> that's You will hear from Professor Dan McIntyre and you will hear from the whole Babel team over there. Fabulous. I'm, I'm so happy that you came on the show. We've had a really good conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been great fun. There's a question that I ask all of my guests nearly all of my guests at the end. And I'm going to ask you this question because I think it's a really fun one and often we get this interesting stuff. If you could change anything about the field that you work in, what would be the thing that you would want to change about it? I would like to see more people being involved in the public engagement side of linguistics and really trying to enthuse people uh, about what linguistics is um, because I think there's still a lot of work to be done uh, on that score. Do you think we need a Minister of Language? Uh, almost certainly. Oh my God. But I, but I, but I don't want to do that job. <laughs> <laughs> so standing at your next election for Ministry of Language, uh, maybe somebody else. <laughs> 
Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. You should do it, Kirsten. Oh, my God. Do you know what? I would. I would love that. <laughs> I don't feel anywhere near qualified. Oh, but no, you'd be great. I can pull my team together of people who know stuff that I don't. It'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So with my thanks to Professor Dan McIntyre from the University of Huddersfield for this wonderful conversation. Listeners, you know how we sign off. So let's sign off for now. You can find Babel at babelzine.co.uk. You can find Dan as well. And we've made him a profile. So just go to fluent.show slash guests slash Dan and you will be able to hear more uh, read more about Dan and sort of find him on his website and social media and so on and of course you can find out all about this episode at hang on let me just look up the episode number so I don't get it wrong for you all dum 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 I think we're 207 so it's fluent.show slash 207 is where you're going to find show notes and other links and interesting things from today and with all that thank you for listening to the show it is goodbye from me goodbye and goodbye from dan mcintyre oh bravo <laughs> thank you for listening to the fluent show if you enjoyed this episode please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our patreon community where our supporter perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a vip option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on twitter at the fluent show or instagram hashtag the fluent show we're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review see you next week